You're listening to the 90-10 rule. 90% business, 10% music. Beth Spangler with Like a Bird. You can look her up online at I Am Beth Spangler. Artists, if you want your music featured on the 9010 rule, email us your songs and notice of approval to play my shit at the 9010rule.com. All submissions without written consent will not be considered. Today on the 9010 rule, 
I'm, I'm going to say something. Man, I hope a gang of people hear this. I'm going to say something to those of you who are close to the artists and you love the artists, your friends, family, other artists. You truly want them to succeed. No one's questioning that. So therefore, you call yourself a fan. But yet, you still have yet to download their music. You still haven't tweeted or posted about their music. You still haven't bought a ticket to their show. You still haven't bought a t-shirt. So I'm not questioning your love for them, but love doesn't pay the rent. Love doesn't pay the band members. Welcome to the 90-10 rule. This is Kevin Davis. I'm here with B, and uh, we got a special guest in the studio today, Mr. Stone Stafford, owner of Icon Studios. What's happening, sir? What's happening? Good to welcome, have you. Welcome, welcome. Thank you. Yes, indeed. So, um, if you would let the people know a little bit about uh, just who you are, how you got started in music, and uh, yeah, okay. we'll take it from there. Um, kind of fell into music, actually, accidentally. I uh, came down here, down to Atlanta from New Jersey to go to Morehouse. Um, had a scholarship to go there, and um, a couple of friends of mine, we all got together and sang at a talent show during freshman week, and uh, they seemed to like us. They were jingling the keys and all that kind of stuff, throwing panties. and No, I'm just kidding, I'm throwing panties. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so they liked us, and uh, we had some people, you know, promoters who were doing shows outside, like throughout the city. They uh, asked us doing shows, and we just started performing around underground Atlanta. We were street performers and all that kind of stuff, and one thing led to another. Uh, had some interest from LaFace Records for a hot minute. And then we uh, ended up signing with a guy named Nat Robinson. Um, MC Light saw us at a showcase one time. And uh, for those of y'all, if you're too young, MC Light's a dope, legendary female rapper. <laughs> but um, yeah, she took us to her father and he signed us to First Priority. He had a situation with Atlantic Records. And that's how I got, I got into the business. Wow. Yep. Wow. Total mistake. <laughs> 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 well, that's a good setup right there. So, uh, what well, I guess in in so you started as an artist and were able to transition into the business. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, is that because of your experience with the uh, with the major label? Or tell you, I mean, I think anyone that's done business, I mean, done music, know that once you get bitten, like with the real bite, is is hard to leave. You can't really see yourself doing anything else, especially if this is what you're supposed to do. So. Um, yeah, I mean, I got the taste, you know, and I was I was hooked. Um, but you know, by then, especially while we were in the group, we just met a lot of people, worked with a lot of big people, and and, um, and my manager actually told me that <clears throat> publishing is where all the money is in music. So he didn't really have to say that twice to me. So I kind of just started learning music publishing. But I was writing for a lot of the stuff in my group. So I, you know, I figured I can write some songs. So I, I wrote some songs, had some stuff coming out, come out before um, I did a single um, on this kid named Jarvis, who was signed to So So Def Jive. Um, I did that single uh, radio with a guy named Sean Hall, and uh, and Jarvis co-wrote on it. So that was my first release, you know, and that was cool, you know. I actually landed on Billboard number eighty six, you know. What I'm saying? <laughs> but you know, it would have done better too. But he ended up getting, you know, dropped or whatever. Jermaine left Jive right when the record was taken off. So you know, and stuff like that happens. But um, but that was cool. So I was writing a lot, and, and all that time learning about music publishing. Um, there was a guy named uh, Mac McKissack. He had a joint venture with Sony. And I was helping him like pitch records, you know, pitch songs. That was back when you were pitching songs. 
for his writers. And, you know, Sony wanted to put him in an office and have a representative here in Atlanta. I got hired for the job. So, um, yeah. So then I became a music publisher. So what, what, was the first lesson, what was the first lesson you got from publishing? Because that's kind of a different world. What, how did that differ to you? Um, honestly, I think publishing is just the heartbeat of it all, to be honest with you. I mean, because especially when I was doing it, publishers were becoming more and more like A&Rs. You know what I mean? Like they were, they were putting the producers with the writers and finding the songs and, and really kind of crafting the team to put the records and the albums together, which is a lot of the A&Rs job. So they were sharing a lot of responsibilities with A&Rs. Um, so that was the first thing I like about it because publishers got a, publishers got a chance to touch and talk to everybody, you know, from the A and R's to the managers to the writers to the artists, they got to deal with everybody. So um, I love that side of it. And plus, you're kind of behind the scenes, <clears throat> and depending if you own the copyright or not, you get to make all the money. I while at Sony, I wasn't owning Jack, you know, so I just got <laughs> a salary. Um, and I also learned that I was a very, very small fish in a big pond. I mean, Sony really helped me get my name on the map, but you know, I'll truth be told, man, a lot of times you think somebody is as big as they are, they really not. <laughs> you know what I mean? We all try to make it, you know what I mean, at right. the end of the day. And you know, I was always known as Stone at Sony, Stone at Sony. And like I was, I was it was during that time when I was meeting people who knew me and I never met them. So that was always kind of interesting, but I was like, if y'all only knew, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And I tried to sign, um, there was this uh, company called Network Production, Network Management in Canada, and they had this girl named Avril Lavigne. Oh, wow. And I remember Joey Arbogy, he, um, you know, it's like anything, you always try to make relationships. That's what, I mean, that's just key in anything in life. But he was a, a VP of A&R at uh, Arista at the time, and I just he just gave me the time of day. You know what I mean? So we would take my calls, he would take my emails, and he would always get my records and listen to them. He and a guy named Keith Naftali, um, they always were, were great with me. So Joey told me that, you know, they just signed this girl named Ava Levine. And he was like, you know, we're putting the whole building behind her. So if you have anything, this is the thing to get on. I'm like, great, you know? So I'm trying to get my writers and stuff to do stuff for them. But on the publishing side, you know, I talked to Network, and I was like, you know, what are y'all doing publishing-wise? And at the time, they were negotiating with Universal, and it was a huge deal, but they said, we're open to talk. You know, we're, we haven't signed anything yet. We're definitely open to talk. So I sent the request on to my boss. And I was like, hey, this is this girl named Harold Levine. You know, they're open to talk about some things. You know, Aris is behind them. whoop de whoop I think this girl's going to be huge. And so my boss sent it to... The guy, a guy who just came aboard at Sony, and I'm not going to say names, but he just came aboard at Sony. He was a numbers guy. So I sent it to him, and he was like, uh, he was like, yeah, I'm very familiar with her. I heard her songs. I don't think she really warrants that amount of money. I thoroughly disagreed. I'm just a little A&R coordinator at Sony, you know what I mean? So, so I called my boss. I'm like, look, this is what he says, but I disagree. And then, you know, I kind of went over his head a bit, which is not what you do. Um, but I felt really strongly about this girl. And so she was like, well, if that's what he says, then that's what we're going to go with. So we'll pass. So I called Network. I said, hey, I'm going to, you know, unfortunately, I can't really make you an offer right now. And 12 million albums later. Right. So all that meant to me was, at least I have an ear. I was like, all right, so I know I have an ear. <clears throat> um, then a friend of mine um, named Chris Young, he was managing this up-and-coming writer named Sean Garrett. And he used to always be throwing me Sean Garrett songs. Always. And this is back when Sean was like sleeping on his couch and all this stuff. You know, everyone has a come up story. Right. So um, I'd never, and Sean would demo his own records. And this is no disrespect to Sean. You know what I mean? I mean, I'm not crazy about 
Hootie's voice either, but he's a star and I totally respect him. So I wasn't the biggest fan about Sean as an artist, but I thought his writing was freaking ridiculous. Um, but he wanted to be an artist so bad. And so um, my friend Chris was like, look, I'm telling you, you need to mess with him, you need to mess with him. So I was like, all right. So I brought him to my boss and they were like, all right, we can offer him a deal, right? But then um, Shakir Stewart at the time, you know, rest his soul, you know, he came and swooped him out from under me because they were writing checks over there at Hicko. <laughs> So it was the same story with with uh, Sean Garrett, with JQ, with um, uh, there was another writer uh, I was trying to sign, but these writers went on just to become huge, you know what I mean? And right. I'm just left like what? And that's when I realized I'm just a pawn. Well, you know, you know what? That's an interesting point that you brought up, though. So mm-hmm. tell me how that transition goes from being an artist, where it's all creative. To where now you're dealing on on a, in more business aspects, and you have to kind of pull back some of your creative side to not, I guess, offend or step on toes of all the creative people. Um, it depends on your relationship with the with the writer or with the producer and stuff. Because if y'all have a good relationship and you respect one another, especially, and people have always told me that I have an ear and stuff like that. So the people I worked with, they kind of tended to know that. So they would listen if I had a, a thought to say. You know, I mean, there was a guy named Chris Henderson. Now, he actually did um, my artist Beth Spangler's majority of her EP, but he he was back then he was doing these hard knocking beats with classical music, and people just didn't know, know what to do with them. But those they were amazing. I was like, man, try this, we try this, and he was just listening and try some things. So it was awesome. So as a publisher, it's good to be creative. So I don't necessarily think you leave it. You just wear an extra hat. Is that you need to understand the numbers and the business side probably a little bit more than maybe your average Joe. You know what I'm saying? So, but um, yeah, so that, that was cool. So I did my stint there. Uh, there was a big layoff. And then I went over to Jermaine Dupree's uh, So So Deaf and um, had a chance to work with producers over there like Nitty, um, No ID, um, uh, a few of them. Their names escape me right now, unfortunately, but it doesn't mean they weren't dope. But I had a chance to uh, meet and write a girl named Crystal Crystal Johnson. Now, this is, she was probably going to be the first or second feather in my cap, because I met one right before her, a 15-year-old girl, but she hadn't popped yet. So, um, so yeah, so I met Crystal Johnson. We signed her. I almost lost that deal. Her manager, uh, Tricky Montgomery, really looked out. Like He really wanted to make sure. You know, he, was, he was just working with me, and I really appreciate He didn't have to. Um, so he made sure I brought it over there You know, with JD, and we got over there. I think it had to be doggone... Shoot, eight months, nine months later, she went like number one with Touch My Body. Right. You know what I mean? And so I'm like, yeah, you know, woo woo. So, and, and we're still good friends to this day. But again, I know what I hear. You know right. what I'm saying? So, and I'm noticing this. And then I'm also noticing too that he's number one, my money's not moving. <laughs> I'm just like, all right, so we got a number one. She got like five of Mariah right now. She in with Janet Jackson. And my money's not budging. You know, I'm like, this This can't be, I can't do this the right. rest of my life to find this stuff. And then I don't reap any kind of reward from it. So um, so anyway, my tenure at So So Def ended. And, um, well, and- before you, that, don't, you can't just breeze <laughs> by that. You can't breeze by that. So when you say your money is not budging, I mean, if you if you can talk about sure. the particulars, what what were you noticing? What things were you not involved in? What were you what were you not placed on to where your money does grow when those things start changing? Well, the thing is, I worked for Jermaine's publishing company or you know production company and in some of the publishing. So I worked for. So I was an employee. So I got right. a salary. I didn't own any of the copyright. So if you don't own the copyright, you don't reap any rewards from whatever that song does. 
Um, and and that's what that was. And I noticed that, you know, I'm like, okay, we're number one, we're selling. You know, his publishing, you know, Denimar is doing awesome. Stone's not budging, you know. <laughs> and and you know, of course, that just brings my mind back. I'm like, I'm finding all these people. And so obviously, I can see it. Obviously, I can hear it. But I'm not putting myself in a position to grow from it and reap rewards from it, you know. And so um, that does kind of segue into a girl that I found, not I found, a guy named Capriccio Skates, Cap. He brought a young producer to me named Baby Girl, 15-year-old, whose beats were just knocking. I mean, like, like I don't know, like a dude, if, if I can say that, you know what I'm saying? <clears throat> but she's a piano prodigy as well. The girl's crazy, and she plays the drums. So she's 15 years old. So anyway, I signed her to my publishing company. I wasn't trying to manage. I'm like, look, we're going to do publishing. And so we, uh, we did. And, you know, I helped develop her. And, and uh, she was a writer, too. She didn't really know she could write. And I just made, I was like, look, you got to write, you know. So she tried to write, and she wrote this amazing record. And matter of fact, one of the first records she wrote ended up getting placed on Justin Bieber's first album. You know what I'm saying? So I'm just like, so ever since then, needless to say, she's been a hundred percenter. She's been writing, you know, whenever she wants to write. She's doing great things now. So she's, you know, she did like six on Life Jennings. She's done, uh, you know, Tiffany Evans, Kiki Palmer. She's working very closely with Missy and Timberland right now. Um, so she's doing some good, some great stuff right now too. That's amazing, man. Yeah. So, so I'm, I'm, you in, in listening to you, I'm hearing you talk about how you. You really had a lot of faith in your ear. Like you knew you heard what you heard. And when you hear success, you know you hear it. You don't know why you do, but you do. Right? right? But uh, trans making that translate from uh, just this feeling about a talented person to uh, navigating the business and mm-hmm. trying to make it count. How you're saying, like, yeah, I'm hearing it. And yeah, these people are being successful. They're getting number one records, but my pockets ain't moving. Right. I think that's some of the thing that a lot of our listeners are going through as well. And so trying to, I guess, what kind of things did you look for when it started to 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 click for you? Like, when did you start to feel like you were, um, like you had it? Like I had it? Yeah. Um, I, does that make sense? Kind of, I think. And if I'm not answering it, then just you know, interrupt and, and rephrase the question. But my first validation, I feel like, came when, like I said, this guy named Keith Naftali sent me an email one day and said, you have a great ear. Keep doing what you're doing. And this is a guy that's been in radio. And like I said, he was a VP over, uh, I think it was at Aris at the time that he moved on to Jay and stuff. But I always respected Keith. you know. And for him to send me an email and say that, I, I, that was like my validation stamp. I was like, okay, I'm I'm supposed to do this, you know. Um, trying to navigate though and go from the pawn to you know the chess master. <clears throat> I'm even, even still learning that to this day. I mean, you know, because back then too, when I was at Sony, you know, Napster hit and stuff, and that immediately just started changing everything. You know what I mean? So, and you had to change with it. But my biggest thing, the part where I probably moved. I wouldn't say move too slowly, but the part that I probably didn't prioritize quickly enough were just really focusing on building long-lasting relationships. Because um, I would meet people and they know me and da 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 but somebody knowing you and you picking up the phone and they picking up your call are two totally different things. And so, you know, I got a lot of people that don't have beef or issues with me, but we don't necessarily roll together and never got in bed together on business before. And that's the relationship relationship. 
And I found going on, on and on and on that that really is the key because the relationship will trump in a lot of cases the record. It's sad to say, Mm -hmm. but a lot of times the the, the relationship will trump the record. You know what I mean? We had a, (laughs) somebody blasted an A&R guy recently on Instagram Y'all might know who I'm talking about, but he basically, he manages two of the hottest writers in the game, but he pretty much put all their records on the artists that he's doing A&R for, because they're his writers, he manages them, you know what I mean? And and a lot of people aren't fans of the record, of the album, because it wasn't really about the music, it was about his relationship and his artists, and obviously, you know, putting money in his pockets, which is a shrewd business move, so you can't be mad at him business-wise, but I think it hurts the music game when you operate that way, but that's kind of how it is. You know, it really kind of is how it is. Everyone's putting on their own people. So it's become a game, a chess game of relationships, of getting to know the right people now and getting in that right crew and that right camp in order to to make something happen. So that's the transition I've had to make in order to get on that side of really starting to make some money. Because even with Baby Girl, like if I didn't know Scooter from So So Deaf, then he would have never come to my studio to do some work. And of course, my wife, you know, Tasha, she's an amazing A&R person. So... The combination of all, I mean, A&R admin person. So the combination of all those things together, Scooter just fell in love with. And that's how we ended up getting on Justin's album, you know. But um, I did have to make that transition from creative to um, politician almost, actually. <laughs> wow. You know, House of cards. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> For, and they, let me, I learned so much. From that show. Man, I can't even tell you I learned so much from that show. Uh-oh, I think he just dropped the Jew right No, there. I'm serious. I mean, when I sit there and watch him, I was like, yo. And I've, he's done some things where I'm like, I'm going to do that. Right. Like, I'm going to do that. Watch. Or it's understanding from something that happened to you, and you had no idea why it happened. You're yep. like, wait a minute. And the light goes up. I've seen this. I mean, I'm not going to have like the three-way in the kitchen, but, you know, still. <laughs> right, right, right. So you mentioned Napster. Um, when we're talking about publishing, how has, how has things like free downloads and people assuming that music is supposed to be free. How has that changed the way that publishers attack a a project? Oh, man. I know this is a million dollar question. It is because you want to blame, you want to blame the internet so much for the lack of sales, right? Because the lack of sales means the lack of copyright making money. So, I mean, you just call it sales. Which, you know, I think you'd, I think you'd be a liar and, and just totally not in touch with reality to say that the internet hasn't affected that. Right. Obviously it has. Is it the, the one, the last bullet that killed the horse? I, I don't know if I could say that because um, it's a blessing and a curse. I mean, it's a curse because it has caused music to come pretty much all but free now. Um, so that hurts publishers. That hurts copyright owners. Um, and for those listening, you know, if you don't have a publishing deal you're still a publisher, all right? You write your song. If you create your song, you are a publisher. You're your own publisher because you exploit that song. So whenever I say publisher, I don't want you to automatically think Sony or Universal or something like that. I'm talking about you if you are a creator of a copyright or if you own a copyright. So, yeah, so stuff like the internet and streaming and all that kind of stuff, it's, def- it's definitely hurt. There's no doubt about it. And, and you're a fool to say that it hasn't. But what it's done on the artist side is it's opened up. It's brought, I always tell people it brings Japan to your, to your mouse, to your laptop. Now it's no problem getting a song distributed overseas or wherever you want from your desk, from your laptop. So that in its way is a blessing. Um, but as I might have lost your question there. But um, Well, no, it was just basically how, how <laughs> as a publisher then do you attack? How do you find new ways of getting income? Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> I put it as, honestly, the publishing part is never going to change because you own the copyright. So whatever happens with that copyright, you get paid. Now, now it becomes a matter, matter of finding different vehicles to make that copyright move. So instead of just focusing on record sales, now you're focusing more so on sync licenses. You know what I mean? It's and, kind of going to what that is. And things like that. So basically a sync license is, in its most simplest form, if you have a song in a commercial or on TV or television or anything like that, that's a sync license. And, and, or where there, wherever, wherever picture and sound are synchronized, if you will. That's a sync license. Um, or just licensing in period. You know, it could be for a radio commercial, it could be for a jingle, it could be for, you know, for anything. Anything where music is, music. You know what I mean? When you're in the movie theaters or in the elevator in the mall, wherever that copyright is being utilized, the publisher gets paid, period, you know, as long as the business is being handled. So it's not so much that it hurts publishers per se, but publishers have to start looking at different avenues to bring in the revenue because the avenues are still out there. You know, when one avenue dies, a new avenue is born. So you just have to now know how to navigate to that new avenue. So <clears throat> where publishing is concerned, publishing is going to thrive because the day you stop paying to use music is the day it'll hurt publishing. Right. And I don't see that happening too much in in the good old U.S. of green. <laughs> it sounds like a common theme that I'm hearing from you, though, is about the ownership. And I, know, I mean, we've known each other for a lot of years, and right. I think you've been singing this song for a long time. I don't know if anybody listens, Forever. because I keep seeing people lose this, but kind of go into how, I mean, I know you said it, but put, really put a pin on it. Like, how important is ownership? I'm either you the owner or the slave. <laughs> I don't think it gets any uh, to the meat. Yeah, I don't think it gets any simpler than that. Um, like I say, either you the chess master or the pawn. You know, you you either own the basketball <laughs> or you wait for the guy to come with the basketball. When he's mad and takes his ball home, the game stops. So I can give you all kinds of scenarios of how important it is to be the owner. I mean, when you own, you don't answer to anyone. You know, and not only that. You also get to explore and create new avenues, you know, to do things like that's the that's really the beauty beauty of ownership is the autonomy to be able to create, um, create new ways of doing things and explore new horizons and stuff like that. As long as you have the imagination and the resourcefulness and creativity to do so. Um, But that's the beauty of ownership. And then, of course, everyone needs your permission to use what it is that you own. They got to come see you. They got to come see you, man. So, okay, so then here's my next question kind of goes back into when you were in artist mode. Mm-hmm. So you told us what brought you to Atlanta. Mm-hmm. But, you know, just in the next statement, you were talking about how now Japan is at your doorstep anytime you're ready for it to, uh, based off just having the internet access. So what do you think is still bringing artists to Atlanta? Why is it necessary? But I, I still see them coming by, you know, by the carloads. They're coming to Atlanta. They're saying, "Hey, man, if you want to get signed, you want to do this, right. you got to come to Atlanta." Tell us what, in your opinion, what some of the benefits of coming to Atlanta still are. Honestly, now it's because Atlanta is a great city, and I can't even front on that. Like Atlanta has become <clears throat> just a great city, and but it's a combination of all the things. It's a combination of the music industry. It's a combination of TV and film. It's a combination of commerce. It's a combination of recreation. It's a combination of lifestyle. It's all of those things. The infrastructure of this city, like Atlanta has truly put itself on the map as far as a metro, being a diverse metropolitan city and great place to live. So that actually has become the real muscle. I mean, <clears throat> I know a lot of people, artists that or producers and stuff that work in LA all the time, but they own the home. 
in Atlanta. And Atlanta is where they come home when they're not working because Atlanta is a great place to live. So music-wise, at the end of the day, we've still made, after New York, we've probably made the next biggest footprint in hip-hop, you know, or rap, I should say. Um, rap slash hip-hop, if you will. I know there's an argument there, but... <laughs> um, but you know, Atlanta's made the next biggest footprint where that's concerned. So, and you're hearing it in everywhere. I mean, everywhere. You know what I'm saying? So, that's going to draw people here as well. But you know, we kind of getting that whole click thing too. So you come here, but if you're not part of that a click a crew, right. now you you still like, man, why I come to Atlanta? Um, so that's the beauty of it. The bad thing about it is the work, though. Unfortunately, the majority of that work is still in LA. So you still have people making these mass meccas out to LA, you know what I mean? So they'll create here, but then they'll take the work elsewhere, which hopefully will change. Um, I know I'm doing, trying to do some things in my little small way that hopefully will come to fruition in a few years to help change all that. But, you know, to balance it out, though, we have film. So Very true. A lot of film awesome. is moving to Atlanta. Which is also an opportunity for music. You know, like with Icon, for example, Icon Studios, the, we have a room that we're building, and it's actually it's, it's being geared towards TV and film. You know what I mean? For them to do post-production, you know, we'll have a 5.1 surround sound. I think we'll be the only one, one of two in Georgia with that. And then we'll be THX certified, which I know will be the only one on the East Coast that I know of right now that has that. Right now they send all that stuff to LA. So we're, so again, we're still tying music into it. And of course you have soundtracks and sync licenses and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, music's still going to play a part of it. Music's still going to be a heartbeat of Atlanta, no matter what you do. Tell us about uh, owning a studio. I know I, I've been to Icon a few oh, times. Oh, Beautiful. It. <laughs> it's a beautiful facility, but tell us, I mean, you know, a lot of people go into this game thinking, hey, man, <clears throat> I gave me a building, get Pro Tools and a couple of microphones, and, you know, let's charge $25 an hour man, until we get big. Uh, tell us a, about owning a studio. Well, just know that I didn't own the studio. I didn't, we didn't build the studio to get in the studio business. So, one, that should tell you something. All right. We did it because, like I said, Tasha, she does A&R admin for, I mean, Bieber's album, all Akon stuff. Um, just, shout out to Tasha. Yeah, shout out to Tasha. So she was she was handing a lot of Akon stuff, and this guy named Divine Stevens. So, and she just saw them booking studio time just all over the place and just paying goos of money. And then sometimes don't show up, you know, but you still got to pay. <laughs> right. So she's like, shoot, man, I need a studio, right? And then me, myself, you know, even when I was at So So Death, like there was no place for our producers to work, you know. And I had one, the thing that really did it for me, I had an instance with, uh, with Atlantic, I think it was Plies, they were going to bring in. And I actually booked, it was a studio called Southside, which is actually Jermaine's studio. I actually didn't know, although I probably should have, but that's his personal studio. I thought it was a So So Death studio. So I'm trying to set up the session, whoop de whoop. I'm telling Atlantic, like, yeah, yeah, you know. Thursday is great, cool, we'll get you in. And lo and behold, I can't book a session there. He's like, yeah, I don't book the outside artist. I was like, oh, so now I've got to save face and figure something out, you know? So this guy named Elrock, he actually had built his own spot. So I think they went and ended up going in with Elrock, but I, I just didn't understand that. I was like, how do you sign all these producers and you have nowhere for them to work? Like that. I just didn't get it. And I'm not saying wrong or right. It's his company. He can run it however he sees fit. But I just didn't understand it. So I was like, man, this can't. I said, well, you know what? I'm going to find a place and just do a room. So I'll never be in this embarrassing position again. So, you know, I'll still be with Sosa Dev, but if they need a room, I'll have a room. 
Um, but then, like I said, my tenure there ended, and we started building an icon, and it was only supposed to be one or two rooms. Um, but as you can see, right. <laughs> it kind of grew <laughs> into this 10,000-square-foot monstrosity. Um, but it's, it's beautiful, man. It's nah, beautiful. I appreciate it. I, I mean, if we want to do it, we're going to do it right. And um, my brother-in-law, um, he really helped um, with that. But um, it, was, it, it was good. But then we found ourselves in the studio business. Because right. now we have this studio and bills need to be paid. We have a mortgage now. We have, you know what I mean? And, you know, rent rather and stuff like that. So we now had to, we had to open up, you know, like the bigger clients like Jazzy and Jeezy. So they came in for 10 years and that was a blessing. But then when they were done, well, you still got to pay rent. So that's kind of how we ended up getting into it. But it was good because it brings the industry to us. You know what I'm saying? So, but I still just wouldn't necessarily advise anyone build a studio um, it's a great instrument, but if you don't have it, own it first. But um, but yeah, so it's 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 been awesome. It's been awesome. It has its it has its moments. So kind of just because I, I know that people are listening, gonna want more on that. Mm-hmm. What what are some of the reasons why you're saying it's a tough business to just jump into with both feet? With as far as the studio, as far concerned? as owning a studio, I mean, yeah. no one gets rich owning a studio. Like, period. You just don't. I mean, because you can only charge but so much. And if you don't own the facility, then the money that's coming in kind of is almost going right back out. You know, it really kind of is. And then people realize they don't necessarily have to be in a studio anymore, at least to create. You know what I mean? Now, there are certain sounds you're going to get from well-built studios and stuff, especially where mixing is concerned and stuff like that. You need to be in a studio. But if you just kind of creating a beat... Or whatever, or just writing session. You don't have to be in a studio for that. I mean, let's just be real about it. And there were times though when all that stuff happened in studios. Right. So mm-hmm. it was rolling. But now, shoot, you got people like a Dent who back in the day did Survivor in his closet. I mean, who needs a studio for it? You know. So, and that part has is hurt. You know, there have been sometimes when I'll call like Jimmy at Zach or. Or um, Curtis or a Patchwork, and they were like, yeah, man, slow right now. <laughs> you know? And we all just like, mmm, and, and together, listen, you know? <laughs> listen, just so you know, these are some of the studios that have the artists that really mean something to the industry. And these guys are even saying that times are bad and times yeah. are hard. So you, you have your times when you're just busy and it's great, but then all of a sudden it's just tumbleweeds. And you're like, oh, my gosh. And, and once again, I'm bringing up Atlanta. Atlanta's a place where things are popping all the time with music. So if some of the top uh, studios here in Atlanta are saying times are hard. This might be something you want to kind of pay attention to when you're at Guitar Center or Sam Ash looking to to uh, satisfy your gear lust and buy all the equipment <laughs> for your brand new studio that you're about to rent out. Uh, just you know, I just wanted to make sure that we kind of put a staple on that because I think that's yeah. that's kind of an important thing that people get so far into. Um, I'm ready to move on to to what you have working now with your new artist, if if you are. Shoot, yeah, man. I have this new artist, um, Beth Spangler. She uh, she's from Aiken, South Carolina. I do a um, a convention kind of talent thing called AMTC. It's uh, Actors, Models, and Talents for Christ, and their whole mission is basically to help Christians be in the music industry or entertainment industry, excuse me, just the right way. You know what I'm saying? Not necessarily fall prey to a lot of things that we see a lot of the stars fall prey to. And just be a light in the industry, but um, but to put them in front of real legitimate people, though. I mean, there are like big people that come out of this place. Like I can't even front. Matter of fact, there's one kid who was at one last last summer. He actually just, he's actually in a lead role in the Nickelodeon. I forget the name of the, the show, 
but he's one of the lead actors in the Nickelodeon thing, but he got found at AMTC. So it's pretty dope, pretty legit. So I'm sitting there and, and they brought me in to do some coaching and help some of the singers and this and that. So I do that sometimes. And so these people walking in my room and all of a sudden this kind of tall, she's tall for a girl because she's five seven, but she had on heels that day. I remember seeing all legs. You know what I mean? It was like 75% leg and then 25% like torso and body. And I was like, holy crap. You know what I mean? And then her face had this cute little face, cute little short haircut, and then just the adorable smile. Everything about her was just friggin' adorable. And I was like, yo, you know what I mean? Okay. So I was like, and in my mind, I was like, God, please let her be able to sing. Please let her be able to sing. So uh, so it was her turn to sing. I was like, what are you going to sing? She was like, uh, Magic, Stevie Wonder. I said, no, no, but what are you going to sing? Yeah. <laughs> this is a Caucasian girl from Aiken, and she talks with a huge, with big old country accent, too. So I was like, she was like, Stevie Wonder. I was like, okay. So I, I'm not even going to lie. Literally, I was just expecting it just to be like, whatever. You just can't be counted on. You can't be counted on. How come you can't be counted on? You just can't be counted on. Game like that. She did a little runs. I was like, oh, <laughs> right. And she had a little sister girl in her too, you right. know. So I was like, oh my god. And immediately, my my brain juices started running. I was like, oh, what I can do with her? Where I can, you know, what? I just saw the future with her. Um, and that's how it started, man. And so we got a chance to hang out at the convention and stuff. She's bubbly. She's fun. She's personable. She's one of those people who's never met a stranger. You know what I'm saying? Right. Um, all the things that you want. Really, uh, in an artist. So, um, shoot, we ended up, I was like, look, can I manage you? I would love to be able to. So she was like, yeah, sure, whatever. So, so yeah, so that's what it is. So it's been, it's been a ride. You know, it's been a ride. So needless to say, she's talented. But just like I tell everyone, you know, the talent and the music, unfortunately, they're no longer at the top of the totem pole. So right. I think we have some great songs. She's beautiful. She's talented. She can dance her butt off. She plays drums. Um, but we just have to get in the right position with the right people. You know, um, and, you know, even she was like, oh, we want a record deal, record deal. I was like, ah, maybe we do, maybe we don't, you know, <laughs> we'll have that talk. So we've been doing it independently right now, but we did, she, um, she did get picked up on The Voice. She was on The Voice for season seven, um, and she got like all four chairs and everything, and everything went great. And she probably went for three rounds, right? You got your blind audition, battle round, then battle round two. Mm-hmm. And so she was eliminated after the second battle round, right before the lives. Right. <clears throat> and so funny, though, because <laughs> I don't know if this is a hurt or not, but I told her, I said, look, I will not be mad at you if you don't win this thing. I wouldn't have been mad at her either. Yeah, she was like, why don't you want me to win? I said, I <laughs> would never tell me. you to throw it, ever. <laughs> but I just know, because back then, she don't really care so much now, <laughs> but back then, she never wanted to disappoint me. You know, now she'd be right. like, hey, if you disappointed, live with it, you know? Right. But, um... But back then, she didn't want to disappoint me. I said, I'm just letting you know right now, I will not be disappointed if you don't win this thing. And so I told her how it can be a, you know, a blessing or a curse, depending on how you're set up to use it. Um, and in my opinion, she got out at the best time you can get out. 
You know what I mean? Because right when you get into lives, this whole new Contracts, section of the contract kicks right. in, and so there's a lot more things you can't do. And you know, but she got on there. People saw her. People loved her. Um, and then she came out. So okay, now America knows who you are. Let's get going. You know what I mean? So and that's what actually, we're doing. Actually, I have a question. Sure. For that, because um, I'm working with a group that got selected to be on. I think it was America's Got Talent. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm consulting the management for that group. And I said, no, no way possible. This is not going to happen. Trust me, don't do it. I even got people that I know have been on it to, to call in and let them hear the conference call. Mm. Um, uh, at the end, a puppet, I think, won this year. Oh, a, pu- <laughs> a puppet. So, wow. Where, when wow. You- <laughs> You're going to lose to an inanimate object. <laughs> right. <laughs> so you, um, when you got the call for The Voice, were you at all apprehensive for the idea that, wait a minute, no, we this could understand. possibly... I went through that process with... The- the artist that I haven't had before her named Matai. So, and Matai did well. Matai actually got up to the top 11. Um, so I didn't, really, I didn't really know anything about the show and just still learning about it. <clears throat> so, um, so she did well on the show. But, so I wasn't, but, but by then I learned a lot. So when Beth came through, there was a whole lot that I knew by then. Um, it is just, like I said, it's a platform to get you noticed. You know, and that's all it is. And so my whole thing is just being on national television a couple of times is good if you're set up for it. Me personally, if, if there's anyone who's going to do those kind of shows, I would say lay your groundwork hard before you get on that show. Like you should have a, 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 a train that's kind of in cruise control already because when you're going through the taping of those shows, you can't do crap. Even while you're taping, like you can't, you can't release any songs, can't do covers, you can't, you just can't do anything. So you should have a train out there that's buzzing. Now, if you do have anything out there already, there's nothing really they can do about that. So you're allowed to push that or whatever, but you know, you can't put out anything new, you know. So you should have a train that's going already. Do your best to build up some kind of a fan base or following already because those are going to be the people that are tweeting for you and pushing other people to like you as well, as, as opposed to just going in there that's dry, you know, and your first Twitter account was when you got on the show, you right. know what I'm saying? Because the thing with that show is, like, people are fans of the show, and a lot of people get that confused. There are a few that become fans of you, but majority, they're fans of you in connection with the show. So when the show's over, in your, their eyes, you're over. And that's why you can't really count those kind of people as fans, per se. Right. You know what I mean, they're not. They're fans of the show. Um, that's why people they wonder why I'm not blowing up. You know, I got I got like with Matai, she got like twenty thousand followers in twenty four hours, and she thought she was a star. I was like, no, you're not a star. You know what I mean? You know, I mean you're a star, but like you're not like famous star like that. And that's it. Matter of fact, while I'm on it, let me get a sip of water on this one <laughs> to put out this vibe. While I'm on it, here's the, this is this is the this is the drawback of shows like that. Is I think Barry Manilow talked about this a little while ago too. The thing that's the the kickback on those shows is you have to respect the process of making it in this business. Like me myself, I've had the experiences of not having a place to stay, you know, living in a room that had no heat, and waking up and having roaches crawling all over my body, having my friends come by and bring me a Big Mac because I was hungry, going down to the drug payphone. And sticking a stick in the slot so the change fell out. And that's how I went and bought my little Debbie snack cakes that I was split up in quarters to eat throughout the day. And trust me, I thought about shoplifting, slipped in plenty of days. You know what I mean? I've lost a lot of weight. You know, going out to LA, having meetings, all of them canceling, not having a place to stay, sleeping in cars, in the parking lot. But all those things built up character and resilience and drive and stuff like that. 
But when you go and you audition for a show and your first step into this industry is having a car pick you up at the airport and having the hair and makeup people right there and having your band right there, having a vocal coach right there, having wardrobe right there. And then all of a sudden overnight you're on TV and bam, all of a sudden you have 5,000, 10,000 people who are all on your account like, oh, I love you, I love you. You haven't done a thing to work and earn that. So you don't, one, you don't know how to keep it because you didn't do anything to earn it. And then second, <clears throat> you miss what goes into appreciating the grind of this thing. Like Beth has a song called Amazing. It was written, produced and written by Chris Henderson, Deep Henderson. And that song to me is probably her most powerful song. And he has a line in there. She sings a line that says, if nothing good comes easy, what would you give for Amazing. And I'm, and to me, that's the music industry, you know, because and unfortunately, because we're in a microwave society and everything's on the internet, you blah blah blah. People want it like this, like this. And I'm not even going to front. I mean, as amazing as Beth is, every once in a while, she'll even have that. She goes, "I need this to happen now," you know, and and she has good reason for needing it to happen now, as most people do. But I'm just like, there's a process we just have to respect, and it's going to be frustrating, and it's going to be hard. But guess what? It's supposed to be frustrating. It's supposed to be difficult. It is. You know, there's an old gospel song that says, nobody told me the road would be easy, but I don't believe you brought me this far to leave me. And my whole thing is all that stuff builds something in you, you know, because everyone's going to blow the smoke in your ear. Just like, a, I mean, I'm not talking down on people with the voice, but there's a culture that they have to establish and uphold. It feels like Disney World there. You know, everyone's your friend. Everyone thinks you're amazing. Your hair is the best hair that they've ever had to work on. <laughs> your face is the perfect palette for the makeup. You know what I mean? And anyone that, that could possibly listen to this podcast and that been on that show, they're like, oh my God, that's what they told me. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I was bald. You know what I'm saying? So, but they tell you all that stuff because they have to create that culture. They have to keep you excited. have to keep you pumped because you're going to perform well. But that's just... You don't get that in the real world, you know what I'm saying? And you need someone to sit there and be like, man, I don't know what I'm going to do with this hair. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or we need to try this and that makeup doesn't work on you. The clothes don't work. You need to hear that. You need to go through that because it builds up something in you. And it's an intangible thing. You can't totally say what it is. So we usually just put it all in the one word of character. You know what I'm saying? But you have to do it. There's nothing microwave that comes out that's good. And that's actually literal. Because all the stuff that we do microwave, even that we eat, is full of chemicals and crap that, yeah. that, that hurts your body. There's right. nothing microwavable that's good, and that includes your career. And so many, and, and and you know what? We were even talking about uh, something similar to that with a, with another guest because the music industry has this lottery feel to it, where you know someone can just kind of pop and make it. Sure. Um, or at least it's presented that presented way. that way, right? Um, but there's so much that's coming at you. I mean, not only is it the idea of fame and fortune, but you have intruding forces in the industry, like what, like Napster or American Idol and The Voice, and so on and so forth. Um, like all of this stuff is happening in real time, and like people just don't know, how to, just don't understand how to. Uh, how to win? Yeah, I mean, you're always going to have anomalies. I mean, that's going. I mean, Justin Bieber is an anomaly. I mean, not everyone's going to be found on YouTube and then blow up like literally a year later. Like mm -hmm. that just doesn't happen to everyone, you know. And to Justin's credit, and actually to even to um, to um, ah, sorry, mom, her, her name slips my mind, but even to her credit, she was a great mom. Like she, like I remember Justin because you know, baby girl and Justin worked a lot together in, in the studio and. His mom was no joke. Like she was a mom. 
You know what I mean? Like she put it on him when she needed to put it on him. So, and of course he grew up and did things that people do. And, you know, he went through his, his phases and stuff like that, which I guess can sometimes be expected, but that root was still there though. You know, and I think that's why Justin isn't ruined. Cause I, I, there was a root there that came from his mom. You know what I mean? And a lot of people don't have that. So when you enter the business the way he did, if you don't have that or you don't have faith, then Dude, you're probably going to be on the bathroom floor somewhere, unfortunately. You know, it's, it's, I'm glad that you said that too, man, because I think uh, a lot of parents see the talent in their child and they kind of get starry-eyed as well. Like kinda. they start thinking about that <laughs> fortune and fame and all that. So, yeah, yeah. especially with a, a show that has a platform as large as The Voice or American Idol or something like that. Like what would you what would you say to a parent that's listening and thinking about getting their child involved in entertainment? You got to remember it's your child and you're always going to think your child's the best. Period. And that is a hard pill to swallow and you can I mean, it's one of those things as a parent in your gut ain't nobody going to be able to tell you different. So it's not like I'm going to sit here and try to convince you, but the truth is you're always going to think your child is the best whether they are or not. And my whole thing is the best thing you can do is to have the humility to see your child as another talent. You're always going to be that child's parent, but if you're going to be in their life where the music business is concerned, you do need to know how to separate and become two people, you know, and see your child objectively. You know, I mean, especially with the thing that I work with, AMTG, I mean, they all think their children are just superstars. I was like, no, they're not. And I'm not even judging. Like, they're not. <laughs> they're not you even mediocre. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, T, you know, even T.I. don't want that. But, um, <clears throat> yeah, T.I. has a song called Mediocre for all that whose jokes went over your head. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so, but, yeah, but the parents, and you got to understand, especially for underage kids, like minors, parents are probably the, the most headache to deal with. Wow. Um, and to be honest, and to their defense, it's because they want the best for the child and they're trying to protect the child. But what happens is you have a parent that doesn't know squat about the industry trying to make decisions for their child as a parent, not as an industry professional. And just because you're a parent doesn't give you a pass as an industry professional. And that's when it starts, that's when it becomes crazy. And they start making demands or they start thinking this shouldn't happen this way, this should happen that way. And they become just like any other artist that hasn't been in the industry before. And uh, and I know my artists and I, actually both of my artists, you know, coming into this industry, there are just lots of things, a lot of things about the industry they don't know and don't understand that they're learning. Um, but sometimes it's a tough lesson, you know what I mean? And sometimes... You know, it's hard. And I was like, that's just not the way you do it. They'd be like, well, why? This makes sense. Well, that's your first clue. Because <laughs> in this industry, they don't do things that make sense. They keep digging. Yeah, exactly. But, um, and it's a hard pill for them to swallow sometimes. But um, I think it's uh, hard, period, though. I mean, I have a daughter who's now becoming part of the industry. And as many uh, years as I've spent dealing with this stuff, it's even difficult for me to object, you know, to have some objectivity to it. Because at the end of the day, that still is my daughter. But, you know, so it, it's not just for the, the parents who've never done this before. All parents are going to deal with this. So you can only imagine a parent who has had no experience whatsoever. Right. It's just a very difficult thing to, to overcome. Mm-hmm. And I always tell people, I mean, this industry is just a different monster. You can't compare it to a Fortune 500. I mean, obviously, they have Fortune 500 music industry companies, but the culture is not the same. It just isn't. You know, it's the one industry where hanging out is working. You know what I mean? Like if you're in the studio and y'all just vibing to records, to, to songs, I mean, you're hanging out, you're working. 
You know what I mean? So it's just different, you know, and unfortunately being late here, there's actually some instances where you want to be late, whereas actually cuts into your swag if you're on time, you know what I mean? Which drives me nuts, but <laughs> but there, things just work differently in this industry, you know what I mean? And if you're a, the kind of person that likes things in a certain order, in a certain way, you will drive yourself to an early grave because it's just not going to work like that all the time, unfortunately. I noticed. I noticed you were saying about um, your artist Beth that um, you guys were independent still. Mm-hmm. Um, and recently, there seemed like the Scarlet Letter that's surrounding the industry, where nobody wants to get a major label deal. Um, it's the death of a of a real artist, a real career. I'm, I'm not so sure that's the case, but I'm, I'm interested in seeing how you how do you take the the major labels? Do you think that it's something that's dead, or is this something that's still valuable? There? Oh, it's far from dead. Um... The major label still has a place in this industry, and they, they probably always will, especially because now it seems like labels are really get, starting to get it, and now it's starting to really change. When I say now, I mean this maybe happened three, five years ago, but they're really starting to make the real changes to cooperate with the, where the music industry is going. Because um, a while they were still trying to just do it the old way, but um, there's always a place for the music for the labels. I mean, radio alone is just a big reason, you know, to be with a major because of the relationships they did have with these radio stations and then budget. I mean, this is the other part that whoever all the, we're going to call it all the 10,000 of y'all listening to this podcast, the 20,000, um, it is freaking expensive to be in the music industry. Now, does that automatically mean it's expensive to make music? Not necessarily. I mean, you can make music pretty much inexpensively, but once that music is made, getting it out there and promoting it and doing what you need to do to get the people to either to buy it or pay attention to you, that costs money. I mean, it costs money. And that's where major labels come are very important as well um, because they have the financial backing. And then just the machine in general, the reason why I can't just say label, major labels have the machine, so yeah, they're great, is because you have some labels though where the machine is there but not everyone, not every part is playing their role. You know what I mean? So not every A&R is being a true A&R. You know what I mean? The artist and repertoire. You know what I mean? It's become artists in research now. You know? <clears throat> there were, that's why, like, the, back in the days, like, your Clive Davis is your Jimmy. Um, I mean, your, um, even Jimmy Iveen, but even, like, your Keith Nathalie's, your Joey Arbogies, like, these were music people. You know, they were music people. So they listened to the record and how did the songs flow together? How to not, you know, well, how many hits did it get? How many plays did it get on SoundCloud? Or how many, you know, nowadays those numbers are pretty much all they need to see to make any kind of a decision. Where, you know, when it was actual music people in those positions, it was about the music. You know, I mean, it was about the song, the actual creativity in conjunction with the business side of it. So major labels still have their play. The reason why people see it as a scarlet is because of what you have to give up to be on a major now. You know, I mean, the popular thing, which by now most people should have heard of by now, the whole 360 situation, you know, labels have their mentality of, look, you, you are now in a position to earn money from a plethora of resources or revenue um, resources. And I, we feel that if we didn't put you out and pump you up and make you as big as you were, you wouldn't be able to take advantage of those resources. So therefore, we feel we have a right to get a piece of all those resources, including publishing, which that part I still don't agree with. 
You know what I mean? But so you, so therefore, 360, 360 Ds is circular. So therefore, they want every a piece of everything, and that's probably one of the bigger reasons big reasons why people don't want to necessarily do a deal. You know, especially if you have an artist that's done so much work and they've built a name on it. Because nowadays, labels don't do a whole lot of signing. There's there's still some that happen, but do a whole lot of signing from an artist that doesn't have anything going on. There's not a whole lot of that going on. So you're doing all this work and all this sweat equity to build up a buzz, a following, and some kind of momentum. And then a label will sign you and say, okay, we'll take you the rest of the way. But it's like people already know you, yet they still going to get a piece of everything you did. Don't forget, the original mentality of that was, we're the reasons why you're popular, so we should get a piece of everything. Well, you come in the door popular, but they're still going to get a piece of everything. Now, of course, it depends on how popular you are when you come in the door. You know what I mean? The bigger your popularity, the bigger your success, the bigger your notoriety, the more leverage you have to negotiate those kind of deals. But that's one of the bigger reasons, too, why people don't want to be with labels. Um, and then you have you know, labels that aren't, again, they're not necessarily music people per se, so they try to fit you into something that they want as a pay to pay attention to what you, who you are as an artist and build around that and create around that. Uh, they don't develop artists anymore. You know what I mean? So you kind of have to come in turnkey, Hey, that ought to be the name of a label, Turnkey Records. <laughs> I'm saying, because that's the reality of it. You right. know what I mean? Because you have to go into these majors, Turnkey. So these are the things that frighten people <clears throat> from major labels. But the beautiful thing is the reason why I don't think such a bad thing to not be on a major, as we discussed before, you have so many resources available to you now. You know, between your TuneCore, CD Babies, and all that kind of stuff where you can put your own music out, you know, do your own marketing. You do your, I mean, with social media, you can, I mean, there's so much you can do on your own. You know what I'm saying? I think someone did this math thing one time before, and it could be off now, but it was like, you can sell, I think it was like 100,000 or 200,000 units out your truck and make more, make what you would make or make more than if you went platinum on a major. You know what I mean? And And that's, that's the truth. I mean, just think about it right now. Even like with like uh, with iTunes, right? What did he get? Thirty cents off the dollar, you know. So you're going walking away with seventy cents. That ain't happening at a major. What are you walking away with? Twelve cents? <laughs> you know yeah. what I'm saying? So it's like you know, it's it's just not the same. So it all depends on what you need and what you want. So whenever people say, "Hey Stone, do you want to?" And I just had this conversation with Beth, as a matter of fact. And, uh, and I think she actually thought I didn't want her to get a major deal either. You know, I said, no. I said, we want the right deal. So we don't want just a major deal just because it's a major. We want the right kind of major deal. And I think both of you guys already know there's tons of people that are signed who you'll oh, yeah. never hear of. Yeah, you'll right. never hear of them. You know what I mean? And I'm thinking of one right now who was signed to get them out of, a, out of the way for <laughs> right. another signing that they wanted. <laughs> wow. Horrible. Right. And they're wow. willing to do that tax write-off. They'll give you 50 grand. You know what I'm saying? And do that deal just to sit you over there so you can't do nothing because this is the person we really wanted. I may, I, I may be the, the, the lone person here, but I kind of feel like the 360 deals make sense. I don't, I don't know if I'm unpopular with that opinion, but you know, me and Cap had a label together mm-hmm. and sitting on that side of the table was very eye-opening. It was very different to what I was thinking of prior to ever doing that side of the, of the work. I think that in a lot of cases, there are great sacrifices that are being made by the label. 
It's not just, you know, we got a whole bunch of money we're going to throw at this artist, but there's actually sacrifices on that side too. There, there's a, a human being on that side of the table right, but as you're, well. You're going back from what I was saying as to why 360s came about in the first place, and that is because we feel that we should, and as an independent, you're really going to feel this. Right. We feel that we're doing all these sacrifices, paying all this money, doing all this work to blow you up. All we going to make money off of is just mechanicals. Right. When it's because you have a hit record that you got that movie role or that you got that sync. So in that case, I see it. But like I said, you have the artists that have done the work right, and yeah. they're coming in with Definitely. some clout and you're still going to get a piece of everything they had. Yeah, that's, that's when it that's, starts that's becoming a little, a little crazy. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. <clears throat> and I think there's there's some artists that would like I've had one I've had a few executives say that if if you're offered a deal, you should take it. Reason being is, is just because you're going to have the, that experience, you're going to you're going to have to like cut your teeth anyway, and so it at least gives you the opportunity to make relationships with people that you may not ordinarily meet. Man, um, that's you and that guy's old. Yeah. Okay. Yo, <laughs> I hey. don't know, man. Well, well, no, this is a, a number of people have told me that. Well, like, let me let me give you, let me give you an example. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the the group that my daughter's in, they were offered a, a, a deal that had ten options. Oh, ten! They're teenagers. Moses. Ten <laughs> options. So you tell me about how you cut your teeth on ten options. That's a long term. That's not even long term. That's yo. that's life. That's a life contract. Uh huh. Yeah. No, that, I mean uh-huh. that kind of mentality says, <laughs> you know, school. Everyone says, go ahead and stick your arm in the fire because you need to feel that fire burns in order for you to understand that fire burns. <laughs> I don't. All I need to see is your jacked up arm. That's it. And I'll be like, you know what? Fire burns. I'm good. Right. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? So yeah. whoever says that, I'm you know nothing personal, but you need to stop talking to people. Because so you don't <laughs> take any deal. You take. The right deal. The That's right with deal. anything. You don't just get with any chick. You get with the right one. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? You don't. Yeah. You don't take any job. You say, well, nowadays you. Might. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, yeah. You don't just do it. Heck, no, I mean, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? I mean, you hear all the nightmares that are out there to people that aren't making a squat of money because they just took the deal. But some people feel like, hey, I'm gonna blow up anyway. Look, just because so- the guy look at you saying, man, what don't you guys don't do? Trivia, trivia, trivia. Come on with me. Come on with me. Five Whoa, heartbeats. Come yes, on. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, look at that. They just took the deal. Right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, nah, 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 nah. I'm telling you right now, Stone Stabber live or, yeah. Pre-recorded. Pre-recorded. <laughs> <laughs> On the 90-10 rule, I'm telling you right now, you don't just take the deal. Period. Big day. <laughs> with, a, with a big red reference in there. Man, I'm just saying. <laughs> All right, Stone, so plug what you got, man. What, what do you want to tell us about? What do we need to go check out? Man, you need to go check out, like I said, my artist, Beth Spangler. Uh, go to BethSpangler.com. That's S-P-A-N-G-L-E-R, BethSpangler.com. Uh, go to iTunes. The EP is called Audio Selfie. Uh, it's a dope EP, man. She has so many different sides of her personality, so many different musical tastes, and that's what we did with this because you notice one song doesn't necessarily bleed into the next and that was on purpose so um so go check that out on itunes google play wherever they have digital downloads um follow her on twitter uh, at i am beth spangler on instagram at i am beth spangler and on facebook at beth spangler music and if you can't get any of those just google stone stafford and make sure you follow me because i'm always tweeting about her <laughs> so yeah man definitely and you know and last thing i'm gonna say on that too is this uh you always hear, you know, support indie music, support good music. I'm, I'm going to say something. Man, I hope a gang of people hear this. 
I'm going to say something to those of you who are close to the artists and you love the artists, your friends, family, other artists, you truly want them to succeed. No one's questioning that. So therefore you call yourself a fan, but yet you still have yet to download their music. You still haven't tweeted or posted about their music. You still haven't bought a ticket to their show. You still haven't bought a t-shirt. So I'm not questioning your love for them, but love doesn't pay the rent. Love doesn't pay the band members, all right? Your love literally needs to be in your financial support of that artist. It is not enough for you to click like on Facebook, all right? You need to go hit download and buy the music and support them. That's the biggest way you can show that you're a fan, Make no mistake about it. Saying I love you, saying I'm a fan is not what makes you a fan. It's when that artist says, hey, I need you to do this and you do it. That makes you a fan. If you're not doing what I just said, despite what you think, I'm not questioning your love, but I am telling you, you are not a fan. I don't care if you're a mom, dad, sister, brother, cousin, nephew, or cellmate. If you're not supporting them financially, no, you are not a true fan. I said it, holla at me. <laughs> we really appreciate you stopping by, Stone. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate what y'all doing here, for real. Visit us at the9010rule.com. That's the9010rule.com.